All right, Jesse, I was very into the eight people being arrested. What's the story this time around? A good-looking, fun-loving, hard-living mother of six is accused of murdering not one, but two husbands and attempting to murder a couple more for good measure. But was she really a cold-blooded, money-hungry black widow? Or an abused woman responding to a lifetime of trauma? Find out today as we discuss the infamous Texas Black Widow, Betty Lou Beats. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jessie Prey. And this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, or if this is your first time to Love Murder, a podcast about love gone fatally wrong, whether it's torturous triads, unhappy affairs, or a good old fashioned husband hunter. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. And if you leave us a review, send us a DM, we'll get you some stickers. Yay, stickers. All right, Andy, are you ready for this good old Texas story that may cause me to use a terrible Southern accent? <laughs> uh, yes, for sure. Um, so we're doing a Texas Southern accent just to make sure. Yes. I, I want to warn you guys though. My Southern accent is just like all over the place. So I don't know <laughs> if you are listening from Texas and you're like, that doesn't sound like a Texan. It sounds like nothing. <laughs> it sounds like a mythical creature, a mythical creature, like grabbed from every area of the South because I don't actually know or sound like a Texan. So um, there was just so many parts in this story that just begged for a little bit of twang and I could not help but roll with it. So <laughs> really guys, excited this, about this. this is going to be a ride. Um, Betty Lou is a really interesting character and I am really excited to dive in with you, Andy. So why don't we do that? Let's do it. It was a sweltering summer night on June 8th, 1985 in Cedar Creek Lake, 60 miles outside of Dallas, Texas, and Sheriff's Deputy Rick Rose was sweating for more reasons than just the heat. Based on his gut instincts and some seriously questionable sources, the investigator had, along with the DA, convinced Judge Holland to issue a search warrant that involved digging up a 48-year-old mother of six's lawn and property. With a backhoe, an entire excavation crew, and his boss breathing down his neck, the first-year homicide detective had a lot on the line. The excavation and forensics team first set to unearthing a whimsical wishing well planter that overflowed with well-tended flowers, fragrant and beautiful in the Texas evening. They were barely at the foundation of the wishing well when the men uncovered a rotting sleeping bag. Shaking it loose, a pungent, sickly sweet odor permeated the air. Enclosed in the deteriorating sack was what had once been a human corpse. Now, 
only a skeleton with bits of flesh still clinging to the bones. Oh. Mm-hmm. The man's pink and white dentures grinned morbidly up from the skull, <laughs> which also revealed one neat bullet hole. Detective Rose's instincts and information had been spot on, and that wouldn't be the only body dug up on the lakeside property that evening. No, sir. One Ms. Betty Lou Beats would end up being responsible for murdering at least two husbands and attempting to murder two more. Was this the work of a money-hungry black widow or a chronically abused woman fighting for her life? We will dig into Betty's backyard and psyche today and find out. <laughs> it's almost like we're justifying her burying a body in her yard because of abuse. Yes, exactly. Well, that's what this comes down to is that some of the guys really don't deserve it. And then some of the guys you're like, you know what? You really would want to chase that motherfucker around with a gun too. (laughs) I like, I just like it, it opens up a whole world of possibilities for this story. So it's, it's compelling. That's why she becomes such a compelling figure because for so much of the story, you are on her side. It's one yeah. of those stories which I love and I know you love where it's just not clear who's a plain villain or not, you know? Yeah. How does she compare to the Giggling Granny? Are they like the same age or? No, she's a lot younger. Okay. Yeah. So the Giggling Granny, I think, was born in like 1905. And Betty Lou Dunavant was born on March 12th, 1937. Okay. Okay. But there are similarities in how they were raised. I mean, I'm going to get into it now, but like you'll see very similar. They both come from the South because Betty Lou was actually born in North Carolina. Um, Very Southern name. My Nana was named Betty Jean and my grandma's named Mary Lou. And they're both like (laughs) Midwest Southern girls. So it's so funny. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you'll see there's there's a lot of similarities there. And hopefully zero similarities between Betty and your grandmothers. Yes. (laughs) Besides the name. Yep. So yes, Betty Lou was born in 1937 in Roxborough, North Carolina, to poor folk just trying to ride out the Great Depression. She spent her young life in a dirt floor cabin that had no electricity, running water or glass in the windows. Her parents eventually moved the small family to Virginia for work in the cotton mills. And this is where five-year-old Betty came down with a terrible case of the measles and an excruciatingly high fever that caused hearing loss and partial deafness. Oh, no. Yeah. it's Betty had it rough as a child. So her subsequent disability made school particularly difficult and she was mocked and made fun of, especially when she was forced to repeat the fourth grade. Oh no. Yep. And her situation with her peers did not improve. After her mother suffered a psychotic break, she was seeing hallucinations and hearing voices and that eventually resulted in a three-month hospitalization where she was subjected to, this is Betty's mother, was subjected to shock therapy and 17 rounds of deep insulin coma therapy. What? Which is, yeah, insulin coma therapy is a technique that they used mostly in like the 30s and 40s um, to treat schizophrenia, where a patient would be placed in an insulin-induced coma for set periods of time. Oh my God. 
this does not sound good. And she she went through that 17 times. So Betty's classmates, because it was a small town, found out about her mother's hospitalization. And they started making fun of her about that too, like pretending to have convulsive attacks when she entered the room and mocking her for her family being stupid and crazy. Wow. Kids are cruel. It's it's crazy. Her mother's frequent hospitalizations left her to cook and clean and tend to her younger siblings. And adding to her problems, her father coped with his depression over, you know, his wife's condition by getting blackout drunk. Of course. And Betty's daddy was a mean drunk and beat the ever-living crap out of her. So life was bleak as hell for Betty Lou, and it's no wonder that she took the first escape route offered to her. Uh, Betty was only 15 when she married 18-year-old Robert Branson, a good-looking teen with a dead-end job at Zipper Factory. But yeah, this is a little bit like the Giggling Granny, so I think she was 15 when she first got married, too. So the two got hitched on July 18th, 1952, one month after Betty finished the ninth grade. Woof. She wouldn't receive a lick of higher education for decades. Over the next 14 years, the young couple would go on to have even more problems than they had kids, which was also a lot. Jesus. Betty gave birth to six children total, four girls in a row named Faye, Connie, Shirley, and Phyllis, and then two baby boys named Robbie and Bobby. Why? I, I don't know. I, why, do, I, mean, I mean, and then why Robbie and Bobby? Like, really? I, that's, that's, I feel like, you know, in the South during this period and actually everywhere before the 1960s, there wasn't a lot of birth control options. Yeah. So it doesn't surprise me why you'd have six kids. I do not know why you would name your sons Robbie and Bobby. I know their dad was named Robert, but it, 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 they're both diminutives of Robert. So. <laughs> I guess Bobby on his birth certificate must have said Bobby or they named them both Robert and just called one Robbie and one Bobby. It's just (laughs) wild. It's wild to me. So there's Robbie and Bobby. Robbie's the older one. It has to say Robbie and Bobby on the birth certificates then. It has to, right? Yeah. Maybe the first (laughs) one was Robert. And then the second one, they're like, Bobby. Bobby. Yeah. (laughs) The family moved to Mesquite, Texas, between Connie and Shirley's births, where Robert scored a good-paying construction job, and Betty was afforded the luxury of staying home with her growing family. By the age of 29, Betty was still quite the cutie pie, with a pile of teased bleach blonde hair, an itty-bitty waist, despite the multiple pregnancies, a large chest, and a petite 5'2 frame. She looks like a knockoff Dolly Parton. She's like... Dollar store dolly. Okay. <laughs> and she's still deaf? Yes, just partially. So at this point, her hearing is bad, but not bad enough that she requires hearing aids. Okay, cool. Betty had always regretted that she had been robbed of any sort of youth, no prom or pep rallies, no bar hopping or flirtations, just marriage and constant dirty diapers all throughout her teens and 20s. And she decided, while pushing 30, that it was high time she had a little fun. 
By then, her older girls could take over the household responsibilities and tend to the little guys. So she started going out to the bars, flirting with men, and attempting to recapture the youth she felt she had missed out on, which is totally understandable. If you get married at 15 and then you spend, you know, the next 14 years having kids when everybody else is like, you know graduating high school and going to parties and having fun and going on dates, you know, you'd get a little resentful, I imagine. Yeah. But was she forced into marriage? No, I think she was just doing it to escape her household. It was one of those situations where she was forced to be the mom because her mother had psychological issues and was in and out of the hospital. So she had to take care of her younger siblings and like do all of the grudging you know, drudgery of the housework. And she was like, well, if I'm going to take care of a house and also her father was hitting her, I might as well move into my own house with my own husband and at least like be taking care of my kids, not somebody else's, you know? Yeah, and not get the shit beaten out of me. And not get the shit beaten out of me. So it, it feels like it was like a exit strategy from her own life that maybe, you know, 14 years later didn't look so great. Yeah. As you can imagine, this didn't go over too hot with her husband, and he filed for divorce in 1969 after 17 years of marriage and some messy affairs on Betty's part at the end. I don't think Robert was entirely innocent himself. He was still a pretty good-looking guy at, you know, the young age of 35, and almost immediately, as soon as the divorce went through, he had a much younger wife. Ew. So it seems like he had her on deck. I don't think he was innocent with uh, the affairs either. So Betty was devastated by this quick turnaround. And she actually, like, even though she had been kind of the one that was like going out and wanted a a difference when, when the only man she'd ever been with and loved was like really quick to get a divorce and remarry, she became completely untethered. And she started forcing her daughters to spy on Robert and his new wife and stalking them. <laughs> Yeah, like, so the the two sources that I used most heavily in this are Buried Memories by Irene Pence, which was a great little book. I think we're going to use another Irene Pence in the future. And then I also watched an ID show called Evil Lives Here. And that's actually a really great series. It's all people who were loved ones of killers who are interviewed. And they interviewed Shirley, Betty's daughter. And it was a pretty recent one. Um, The episode came out in September of 2020. Um, It was very powerful. So if you're interested in the story, I would recommend that episode. Um, So yeah, so Shirley said in Evil Lives Here, that any positive memories of her mother came before the divorce. Afterwards, she gave up being a mother altogether, abandoning her kids to go out all night drinking, forcing the older girls to maintain the home. And she started probably because of some of this alcohol and drug abuse she was doing at the time, issuing terrible physical abuse to the girls. Yeah. I and mean, it's, it's just like, you, it was you, just, you act the way you are treated, you know, it's like. Exactly. And she said like before her father left, her mother had always been the disciplinarian and she would like sometimes spank them. But after the father left, she was like full on hitting them, hitting them with belts, hitting them in the, with a belt to the face. And it was especially raw when they wanted to like have their own lives. So she was also 
robbing them of having the experiences that she was jealous about. Like if they wanted to do extracurriculars after school, she was like, no, you have to come home right after school and you have to like take over the household and watch the kids so I can go out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, oldest daughter Faye followed in her mama's footsteps by marrying at the age of 15 to escape her hellish home life. Yeah, Man, we see this over and over again. It's just these cycles are just doomed to repeat themselves, you know? Yeah. I mean, they can break, but it takes a lot of like self-work and realization. Effort. Everything. And I don't think that Betty had the awareness or the resources to be able to do that work, obviously. And back then too, it's like. No, I mean, we're talking about, I think like the late 60s at this point. So absolutely not. Uh, So Connie went to go live with Faye and her new husband. Youngest daughter, Phyllis, and older son, Robbie, went to live with Robert and his new wife. Poor Shirley just kind of drifted, sometimes at Betty's, sometimes crashing with friends. And only youngest baby son, Bobby, remained with Betty because he was only three at the time of the divorce. Oh, no. Sounds like a nightmare for these kids. And also, they're all split up, you know? Yeah. Ugh. A year after her divorce, Betty fell for Billy Lane, a house painter seven years her senior. The couple married on July 28, 1970, after only dating for a few months. Only days after their wedding, Billy began hitting Betty. Stop. Mm-hmm. She is like out of the frying pan and into the fire over here. So she did everything she could to make Billy happy, including picking up a pretty nasty addiction to Dexatrim, a diet drug that she consumed up to three times the recommended dose trying to stay thin and attractive for him. I remember that. I remember that shit. I don't remember it from like taking it or anything, but I remember that name. Dexatrim. Yeah, Yeah. I think it was pretty potent. And so it did make her skinny, but it also made her irritable, have huge mood swings, headaches and insomnia. And it caused her to have like really bizarre erratic behavior. Is it like meth? I mean, I don't think so because it was I don't think it was necessarily FDA approved, but it was on like the mainstream. You could buy it at any like convenience store. Um, I'm sure it was just uh, like Fenfen probably. Oh yeah, that's right. That I remember. Yeah. Okay. That's what I'm I'm guessing it was. Um, Yeah. So her kids were completely bewildered by her behavior. And also they were really worried about her because Bill, especially like he knew how proud she was of her good looks. And so he would like hit her over the face, like on purpose, like most abusers try to like cover up their abuse by not hitting the face. Yeah. And he like would purposely do damage to her face because it was her point of pride. Yeah. So her kids are seeing this, obviously little, little Bobby is growing up seeing this and they're begging her to leave him. So she managed to get a restraining order and divorce him only four months after their wedding. But tragically, the couple reignited their romance, got back together, and the violence, of course, escalated. Oh, my God. Uh Uh-huh. So Bill frequently sent Betty to the hospital once in May of 1971 for a broken nose and only months later after he punched her so hard in the left eye that she required stitches. Holy shit. And they can't arrest him on that? I I don't think that Betty pressed charges, which, first of all, I think now people are a little bit more savvy when a woman repeatedly comes in with what is clearly 
having been hit. I think there's like mandatory reporting. Yeah. But I think at the time, you know, we're talking the early 70s. I think if she said, oh, I fell down the stairs, if she went to a different hospital, I don't know if it was the same hospital. She said, you know, this was an accident. I think people just were like, okay, she's not pressing charges. She's not saying somebody did this to her. So go on home, you know. On January 17th, 1972, the couple got into a screaming match in a country Western bar after Betty danced with another man. (laughs) Betty, yeah, really, a spin around the old floor with another guy. So they, they ended up like screaming at each other in the parking lot. And then Betty had, they had driven separately for some reason. So Betty got in her car And she drove by and she saw a police officer like lingering about and she actually stopped and she told the police officer, hey, look for this type of truck. If it follows me, then you have to follow him because it's my ex-husband and I think he's going to kill me. But Bill actually went home to his house. So he went the opposite way. So, you know, the cop didn't have to follow him. However, at 1.45 in the morning that same evening, police were called to Betty's apartment where they found Bill Lane lying unconscious in a pool of his own blood. He had been shot twice and then taken a tumble down a set of concrete steps. So Betty, of course, claimed that Bill had come over to attack her and that she had fired in self-defense. The investigators eventually arrested her for assault with intention to commit murder, however, as Bill had been shot twice in the back, not in the front like he would have been if he was advancing towards her. (laughs) Is he alive or dead? He's alive. He's alive at this point. Oh, my God. Yep. So furthermore, Billy Lane's daughter claimed that she had been listening on the phone extension when Betty called Bill and that Betty had actually begged Bill to come over so that they could like work out their fight. Oh my God. So obviously there's some question about whether Betty had intentionally lured Bill Lane over to kill him. But at the same time, it is on very good authority and recorded at the hospital that this guy has beat the shit out of her. So I know, uh, but why would why would she like taunt him over? I know, not a good play. Oh. So also to make matters more devastating, Shirley told ID producers while they were filming Evil Lives Here that this was not an isolated event, this potential attempted murder that actually the couple fought so often and so intensely that Betty had hid this particular pistol in the house, only telling 11-year-old Shirley where it was. And she said, the next time I'm getting hit or we're fighting and I call for you, you get this gun and you take it and you shoot him. So that occurred... Betty starts screaming for Shirley. Shirley gets the gun. And she said that she was an 11 year old child with her hands shaking and her mother's telling her to shoot her stepfather. And she just stood there totally frozen, like freaking out when finally her stepbrother, Bill's son, Bo, broke into the room and wrestled the gun away from her. And then the whole fight broke up, obviously. But like she was crying and she's like, I can't believe my mom was prepared to make an 11 year old child a murderer. That is insane. Insane that you would tell your 11-year-old kid to shoot your husband. 
Oh, yeah. So this was not like a shocking out of the ordinary event. So Bill was in critical condition, but he survived after surgery to remove the two bullets. He claimed Betty had invited him over to talk and then ambushed him with gunfire. He endured three weeks in the hospital and then several more weeks of painful physical therapy. Of course. Shot twice in the back. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. I'm not by any means like, fuck this guy. You know, he was beating the shit out of her, but that's yeah, like, but still, it's crazy. I mean, Usually, if you shoot somebody a couple times, you kind of assume you've killed them. That's the point. Right. You don't shoot somebody to to injure them generally. No, no. So one of the bullets badly damaged a nerve leading to his right leg, which left him unable to walk. Unbelievably, Betty immediately went back to him. One of Lane's neighbors told <laughs> authorities, I like Billy, but he's jealous of Betty because she's so beautiful. I know Betty loves him. You should have seen those two. After he got out of the hospital, his right leg was no good. He had to learn to walk all over again, and Betty spent hours helping him. She'd get him on his feet, and they'd put their arms around each other, and they'd go back and forth on the sidewalk. Quite a thing to watch. She loved that man. You could tell by the way she spent whole afternoons just walking him up and down the street. After she tried to kill him. The reason he's spending his afternoons partially handicapped walking up and down the street is because she shot him twice in the back after tricking him into coming over. Yes. She's insane. So obviously the officers didn't know what to make of the case, but they were more puzzled when just days after the hearing, Lane hobbled up to them on crutches and said, I'm willing to sign an affidavit that I threatened Betty. So he is taking all the credit for the crime all the blame rather without a plaintiff to press charges the court had no option but to drop the murder charge to a misdemeanor aggravated assault in court betty gladly pleaded guilty to the lesser charge and lane pulled out his wallet and paid betty's hundred dollar fine and fifty dollar court costs in addition little old betty persuaded the judge to return her pistol these two are kind of like a match made in heaven. Like they should I mean, yeah. a match made in hell. Yeah. <laughs> then baffling both of their families, Betty and Billy Lane remarried the following month. I, I, <laughs> no, I like completely, I like, this is not shocking it. to me. Yeah. yeah I can, <laughs> where'd they get married by the way? I think they just went back to the courthouse. It was okay. not a, like a big wedding. Yeah. The crowd back at the bar where the lanes usually hung out wondered if Betty had helped Billy learn to walk just to get back in his good graces. Mm, You think they figured also she probably promised to remarry him in exchange for his cooperation on her plea reduction. In any event, their second marriage lasted only one month. And to ensure that the Lane saga had finally ended, 35-year-old Betty packed up Bobby and moved to Little Rock, Arkansas. Bye. Bye, Billy. Oh, my God. Wild. Wow. Yep. So after she was only in Little Rock for one singular week, Betty Lou met the man who would become husband number three. 
So wait, she's in Little Rock just with um, Bobby, not with Shirley? Just with Bobby. Yeah, Shirley, I think, was staying with friends at this point or God knows who. She said she kind of just bounced around. Like sometimes she was with her older sister. Sometimes she was with her dad. Sometimes she was with her mother. And sometimes she just like stayed with school friends. Okay. So in Little Rock, Betty Lou met the man who had become husband number three, Ronnie Threlkeld, a divorced automotive parts salesman. The two dated mostly happily over the next four years, but fights when they did occur were completely explosive, resulting in Betty slashing Ronnie's tires or attacking him with a tire iron. Wow. Yeah, Betty Lou was done taking anyone's shit. That was for sure. After a few years in Arkansas, Betty convinced Ronnie to move to Dallas so she could be closer to her kids. The two were married in Texas in February of 1978. But as these things happen on our show, the honeymoon was (laughs) short-lived. I don't think I've ever finished that sentence with, the honeymoon went on forever and they were happily married and are now celebrating their 50th golden anniversary. I know, we need to come up with some like new ways of saying that. Yeah, we should. We'll like just take like have our um, listeners write in with like their grandparents or parents anniversaries (laughs) and we'll have like at the end close the story with an actual story of true love. (laughs) I don't know. I think that's kind of a good idea. Like the world is broken, obviously, because this is this podcast. But here's an example of love that worked. (laughs) Betty's behavior was growing increasingly terrifying, striking out at her children, both physically and verbally. She was on a dangerous cocktail of diet drugs and booze, but the kids weren't sure if that was the issue or if she had inherited her mother's mental illness issues. In any case, life with Betty was hell. Shirley talks about her mother repeatedly accusing her of attempting to seduce Ronnie and screaming at her that she was a slut and a whore who no one would ever love. And that's why she had to reduce herself to stealing her mama's man. Oh, God, can you imagine your parents speaking to you like that? No. It's It's devastating. Such trash. It's corrosive to the soul. Shirley is reduced to tears in the investigation discovery show saying about the abuse in general, the bruises go away, but the words linger forever. Yeah. Mm-hmm, and I believe that. In an account from Buried Memories, Irene Pence did report a story of something that happened between Ronnie and one of Betty's girls, doesn't say who, that ultimately ended the marriage and very nearly Ronnie's life. One ominous night, Ronnie sat at the kitchen table having a drink when one of Betty's daughters sauntered into the room wearing a robe. Whether she intended to tease Threlkeld or to spite her mother, the young woman stood before him making idle chatter while slowly untying the silken green sash around her tiny waist. The robe dropped to the floor. With timing from hell, Betty came into the room at that moment and saw her daughter standing completely nude in front of her husband. Uh, This is um, reported by Ronnie Threlkeld. Okay. You sorry son of a bitch, Betty screamed at the top of her voice. I knew something like this was going on. You were always giving my girls the eye. But to do something like this right here in my home, well, that just takes it all. Threlkeld tried to protest, but Betty's screams drowned out his words. Her daughter had grabbed her robe as soon as she spotted her mother and tried to cover herself, frantically dashing out of the kitchen. 
When Betty stopped to inhale, Threlkeld said, Now wait, Betty, it's not what you think. There's never been anything between me and your daughter, with none of them for that matter. Betty refused to listen. And as she unleashed her tirade, Threlkeld got the unmistakable message that he'd just been given his walking papers. Dating Betty had been a lot more fun than being married to her. She had changed from an upbeat, happy girl he had first met to the sullen, negative woman given frequently to venting her rage. Because of her metamorphosis, he found it easy to leave the Hellcat nobody messed with. Had Threlkeld known that Betty had shot her last husband, he might have been a little bit more concerned with what Betty would try doing to him next. Did, did it say what daughter did that? It does not say. He didn't say. And okay. Irene Pence didn't say in the book. So like I don't know. Vague. It's very vague. And this is according to Ronnie. So we don't know. He could have been a creeper too. Or yeah. the whole thing. Whatever happened, there was something. It, it surely didn't talk about this incident on her first person narrative show. Okay. Um, she only said that her mother accused her of of seducing him constantly, but she also suggested that he had never done anything of the sort. Okay, that this was all Betty Lou's creation. But if this situation did happen, then who knows? Okay. The next day, Threlkeld busily loaded his belongings into his car. His mind was occupied with trying to find a place for everything, so he wouldn't have to leave anything behind. When he heard the sound of an engine coming closer, he looked up and saw Betty's car roaring toward him. Quickly, he dashed between two cars in just enough time to avoid being hit as <laughs> Betty swerved past him, spraying him with gravel. Moments later, he left for Little Rock, grateful to be alive. I bet. Wild. Didn't, it didn't make out like that poor uh, dentist back in our, oh, I know that's our October. Yeah. Oh, that guy got it bad in a parking lot. Bad. With his oh. daughter in the car. So bad. Oh, yeah. God. That guy, I forget which cuck that was, but if you haven't listened to that one, it's one of the Cucktoberfests we did back in October. Shortly after Betty's third divorce in August of 1979, the now 42-year-old mother told a strip club manager that she was 32 and tried her hand at topless dancing. Stop it. <laughs> Betty Lou, you bad. You so bad. <laughs> she was apparently like at a strip club and she was like watching the girls dance and make money. And she's like, what? I got a better body than these bitches. I could do this. And so she like went over to the strip club manager and she's like, get me up on that stage. I'll show these girls how it's done. And he's like, how old are you? She's like, 32. <laughs> she was 42. Um, and he's like, we got a night for that. You come back for amateur night. We'll get you up on that stage. And she was like, all right. So Betty's first and only shot at stripping resulted in her arrest. Stop. During her spin around the stage of Charlie's Angels Amateur Night, one of her pasties fell off. <laughs> Always an enterprising crowd engager, Betty cooed, is there some nice gentleman in the audience who'd like to assist me in putting this thing back on? So one drunken man volunteered, grabbing her breast in one hand and the pasty in the other like a perverted slapstick routine. <laughs> Unfortunately, 
There was an undercover vice cop in the audience and Betty was hauled off stage and arrested for public lewdness. That's that's fucked up. It's oh, it gets more fucked up because listen to this. Later, a judge fined her $250 and shockingly put her in jail for 30 days. What? Okay, so she did more time for letting a guy touch her boob than she did for shooting her ex-husband. <laughs> Wild. This so is backwards. backwards. It's so, so backwards. backwards. It's so America. It's so America. Americans have such a fucked up relationship with sex and violence. They're like, a movie can be like PG because two parents are like in bed together. But then there's like a gratuitous shooting and we're like, oh, we're fine with that. They can watch that. (laughs) Oh, my God. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Yeah. So only a few short months after her stint in jail, Betty's prospects were looking brighter after she met a tall, good looking roofer named Doyle Wayne Barker, who went by Wayne while pumping gas. The two divorcees hit it off immediately and married real fast on October 3rd, 1979. Unfortunately, husband number four was not the lucky charm, and the two fought incessantly right after they got married, resulting in a divorce just as quick as their wedding. In January of 1980, Betty was a single woman once more. Shortly after the divorce, though, Betty was in an absolutely horrific car accident, and she almost died. Was she boozing? Um, probably she was always on something to be honest but it doesn't it didn't say in the book she recovered okay. yeah so I probably shouldn't say that I'm like yeah definitely that I crazy think- bitch was always on something something yes that was a wild speculation and, and characterization on my part so I apologize guys just editorializing left and right here um <laughs> So, yes, she did recover, uh, but unfortunately, she had suffered a skull fracture, serious lacerations, and a cerebral concussion, which we know never helps anyone's situation. No, especially if you're already crazy. Exactly. Her migraines came back with a vengeance, and her hearing, which was already, like I said, extremely limited, deteriorated to the point where she required hearing aids. So she was feeling exceptionally vulnerable after the accident and self-conscious about the hearing aids. So she decided to give Wayne another shot and the two remarried. Another shot. Another shot. (laughs) So Betty fell in love with a small plot of land on Cedar Creek Lake at the edge of Gun Barrel City, not far from where Wayne's employer, Jerry Kukendall, and his family lived. So I guess that they used to go out to Cedar Creek Lake all the time to very, uh, to visit Jerry and his family. And she okay. was just like, I want to live here so badly. So Betty cut a deal with Wayne that she'd buy the property if he purchased a trailer to put on the half acre lot. He agreed and they often socialized with the Kukendals who reportedly adored Wayne and thought Betty and Wayne made a charming and happy couple. Betty was crazy for her new two-bedroom trailer. She had never had anything brand new before, and she loved, like, decorating it, showing it off. She was really, really proud of her home. Uh, Bobby was now a teenager, and he was enrolled in the local junior high, where he was actually fitting in quite nicely and getting good grades, despite a very tumultuous upbringing. Yeah. 
For a while, everything seemed to finally be going Betty's way. But in Betty's life, things cannot just go smoothly. The happiness did not last long. Betty reported to her daughter, Shirley, that behind closed doors, supposed nice guy Wayne actually beat her up as well, just like her past partners. So there's questionable verification of whether this actually occurred. Okay. Bobby later will testify that he witnessed abuse on Wayne's part. But none of her other children nor anyone else they knew could verify that. And she didn't go to the hospital for any issues at that time. So Shirley begged her mother to divorce Wayne, leave him for good, maybe start dating a different sort of man or, you know, stay single for a minute. But Betty Lou wasn't having any of that. She claimed she couldn't divorce Wayne because he would take the trailer, leaving her homeless and broke. No. Betty Lou had other plans indeed. From Buried Memories, here's the conversation as reported by Shirley. I'm going to kill him, Betty said stoically. Shirley laughed. No, don't talk silly. I mean, really, what are you going to do? You've got to leave him or he could really hurt you. So you think I want to take this shit? Betty asked. Mama, you've got to divorce him. That's all there is to it. Betty remained silent for a moment and then said, Hell, I can't do that. The trailer's in his name. If I divorce him, he'll get the damn trailer and I'll be stuck with an empty lot. What good will that do me? So Shirley said, Then buy a trailer. You told me you're making good tips at the Cedar Club. That was um, a bar that Betty Lou was working at at this point. Okay. If you start a little nest egg now, in a few months, you could have a down payment. In the meantime, you could get a restraining order against him. I don't relish getting put out in the damn cold with winter coming. Of course not. But you don't mean you're really going to kill him. What if you got caught? I won't get caught. Hell, I've planned every detail enough to set to that. Look over there. Betty said, turning to an open space in the trees behind them. See that hole? Betty pointed to a mound of loose soil that had been freshly turned. What about it? That's where he's going to be. No one will ever find him. You dug that yourself. No, of course not. I was talking real nice to one of the construction guys who was fixing the street in the next block. I told him I was building a barbecue pit and needed a hole dug. I said, I bet it wouldn't take you but a few minutes to dig something about four feet deep with that big backhoe of yours. He said he guessed it wouldn't and offered to come by after work. I told him I'd have a cold one waiting for him. Of course, like most men, he said he was hoping I'd have something warm waiting for him. I, I mean, how can you kind of not like her right now? I mean, how can you not read that with a Southern accent? Also, right? So yeah. you're welcome, guys, for Jesse Peace Theater right now. Did you see who joined the, the audience? I did. I cannot. Right now, Quincy is doing his best impersonation of Grumpy Cat. He looks so grumpy. <laughs> I thought you got a door so he can't sneak in I anymore. Did. I think we're still waiting on the handle, the knob. So he <laughs> pried his way in. Andy, we usually edit it out, guys, but like literally two to three times an episode, Quincy just wanders in and just like starts like thrashing about Andy's lap or her recording equipment or lays on top of her computer. So here we are. Take a little picture. 
Hi, Quincy. <laughs> he doesn't like being away from you. No, not right now at all. Follows me everywhere. Okay. <laughs> He's so funny. <laughs> he was making such a little squish face. I know. Oh, okay. my God. Back to Betty. He was hoping I'd have something warm waiting for him. She laughed and gave Shirley a little jab with her elbow. I couldn't risk a toss in the bed, not with Wayne coming home at about the same time. So I thought, what the hell? I'd pay him $20. I didn't want to get messed up with anybody else right now. So oh somebody knows you had a hole, Doug. Yes, but he's not the type to put two and two together. Sorry, it's so funny. <laughs> I feel like I'm back in uh, like high school <laughs> drama club right now. Doing Tennessee Williams. Um <laughs> Yes, but he's not the type to put two and two together. If he does, I'll just have to have something warm waiting for him. Oh, God. Like, referring to your pussy as something warm is just not not a Sunday afternoon conversation. No, it's not. <laughs> something warm waiting for Very him. jarring. It's very jarring. We're being so American right now. We, we're talking about literally blood and guts and abuse but then we're like oh something warm well, that just makes our american brains explode <laughs> not on a sunday afternoon <laughs> it's day it's a day of church the day of the lord you can talk about murder but not sex not filthy dirty sex <laughs> oh my god too much <sighs> too much and Speaking of murder, this is where it gets murdery, guys. That evening, Betty brought Bobby over to Shirley's house to sleep and gave her a wink as she left. Despite Betty's words and Bobby's presence in her home, Shirley struggled to really accept that her mother was going to actually murder her stepfather, which you don't. Yeah, you think you're like, that's crazy, mama, you know? But murder Wayne, she absolutely did. That night, Betty waited until Wayne fell asleep. She then retrieved her 38 caliber Colt revolver from its hiding place and placed a pillow over the gun to stifle the sound of the shot. She placed the barrel and improvised silencer close to Wayne's snoring face and pulled the trigger. Wayne's body jerked as if in shock, and Betty realized that the pillow had actually thrown off her aim as Wayne groaned awake. Quickly, she fired off two more shots into his skull that seemed to do the trick. Within seconds, her ears were ringing, and the trailer was filled with the acrid smell of blood and gunpowder, and Doyle Wayne Barker was dead. Ooh, brutal brutal well he's sleeping she didn't even give the guy a fighting chance it reminds me of the amish story yes that was while she was sleeping and yeah. um way back to alice and gerald remember that uh, that one murder she did while the guy was sleeping but she said later it was self-defense oh yeah uh-huh oh god cowardly way to murder it is it is yeah so she didn't do much- any of the work. She like had someone dig a hole for her and just <laughs> shot him. And she like- somebody to dig the hole for her, which was really smart. <laughs> uh, something, something cold, cold, something warm. <laughs> oh, oh man. God. 
So with much difficulty, tiny Betty Lou Barker wrapped her husband in plastic sheeting and then unzipped a sleeping bag, pushing and prodding his dead weight until she could contain him within. This, I imagine, would take a lot of work for a little bitty thing. She's only 5'2". I think she weighed like maybe 100 pounds. Yeah. I guess it's good she's got that like dirty Dexatrim high going on. <laughs> Full of diet drug power here. She rolled the body into her closet and closed the door on the messy business. Then Betty set to clean the blood from her bed, bed sheets, walls, and floor with the zeal of a housewife on meth. She Lysoled every surface, rinsed all the towels and sheets until the water ran clear, and then triple washed them with bleach in the washing machine. After hours of diligent scrubbing and scouring, Betty fell asleep in the dawning hours of the morning, feeling satisfied with a husband and a cleanup job well executed. Got that little double entendre right there. I, I see what you did there. I see wink, what you did there. Wink, 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 wink. <laughs> So, speaking of winks, Shirley had barely slept one the night before, and as a result, had slept in past noon the next day. So, she was up all night, freaked out about whether or not her mother was actually going to do this. So, she awoke to a note that her husband had dropped Bobby off with a friend whom he'd be spending that night with, and a pit of dread in her stomach. And that dread intensified when she found her mother stretched out on her sofa when she came down the stairs. To her horror, Betty calmly said, it's over. I did what I told you I was going to do. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Also, so matter like, of the fact. So matter of the fact. Also, I don't want my mother, I love my mom, or my mother-in-law or anyone, just to be on my couch in my house when I come down from my bedroom. Like, don't come in my house without me asking you to. That's scary enough. But then also knowing you killed a man. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. So Betty then stoically discussed every detail of the murder and told her she needed help dragging Wayne into the pre-dug hole uh, and what? burying him under the cover of darkness. In the book, it basically, it makes it sound like she was like, I don't know how I'm going to do it. And like manipulated Shirley into saying that she would help her. Okay, and in the in the in the movie or show, yeah, and the same thing. Basically, okay. like Shirley says that she was manipulated and forced into doing it because she was terrified of her mother. And we also have to remember that Shirley had suffered decades of mental torment and emotional abuse from this woman, so it was pretty easy to have her mother push her buttons to get her to do what she wanted, you know. I guess. Ugh. So the tr- two created a story for Shirley's husband and that evening got hammered on white Russians to fortify themselves for the task at hand. How do you get hammered on a white Russian without vomiting? That's a lot of white Russians. Isn't it made with like cream and like it's, Kahlua? It's vodka, Kahlua and milk. Oh, God. <laughs> I do think you'd get really full before you were hammered. But I guess if you made them really strong. Of course. Yeah. With they like- are delicious. Like if you're going to have one of something. Oh, God. <laughs> it's really gross. 
So at midnight, they dragged Wayne, still in the sleeping bag, from the closet to the hole in the yard and shoveled dirt on top of him until blisters appeared on their hands from the shovels. Afterwards, they kept drinking. I don't know if they stuck on the white Russian train. Um, And the next day, extremely hungover, bought cinder blocks to create the appearance of a patio over the homemade grave. Okay, does Shirley get arrested? Maybe. You just have to wait and see. This is like, that's like pretty bad. I mean, yeah, that's accomplice to murder. (laughs) We, we, there was a hell of a lot of accomplices to murder the last episode. We've discussed it all. This is 100% accomplice to murder. Yes. At five the next morning, Betty called Jerry Kukendall, Wayne's boss, to let him know that the two had gotten into a blowout fight and that Wayne had run off on her. Jerry was perplexed as last he heard from Wayne, their relationship was going fine. And what's more, Wayne was a very reliable worker. He wouldn't usually let a fight with his wife prevent him from showing up for his job. Yeah, yep, yep. His concern grew when he drove over to the Barker's trailer after work and saw Wayne's truck there. So at first he's like, oh, good. Wayne came home. It was just a weird thing. And then Betty's like, no, he's not here. And he's like, but his truck is here. And she's like, yeah, she's like, oh, he just walked off. We got in a fight and he walked off on foot. And Jerry said, I've never heard of a man leaving without taking his truck, which is a good point, Jerry. It doesn't make any goddamn sense. (laughs) Like Betty, you got the whole pre-dug. You didn't have a plan. I think she wanted the truck, to be honest. Probably. She Mm -hmm. needs something to pull the trailer. (laughs) yeah it's true so jerry never heard from wayne again though betty sure as heck made sure to show up the next friday to collect his paycheck oh my god shameless meanwhile betty did not spend a lot of time playing the grieving abandoned wife while working as a barmaid and cocktail waitress at the Cedar Club, she connected almost immediately with a handsome firefighter named Jimmy Don Beats. Wow. Jimmy Don's a good guy. We like Jimmy Don. Jimmy Don was an outgoing native Texan who was beloved by all and had almost as many previous spouses as Betty had. He had three ex-wives to her four ex-husbands, although jovial Jimmy Don had never tried to kill any of his wives. He had one grown son from his first marriage named Jamie, who hated Betty pretty much immediately. Listen to your guts. Yeah. He tried to warn his dad that she was, quote, a selfish, manipulative bitch. But Jimmy Don was infatuated with the pretty, funny, and wicked barmaid. He wouldn't hear any of it. After only a month of dating, Jimmy Don moved into Betty's trailer. So he moved right into the bedroom where she had just killed her ex-husband. Yep. Soon after, Betty filed for divorce and charged the absent Doyle Wayne Barker with desertion. And just like that, Betty was free to marry for the fifth time. Betty didn't even try to look for him? No, this is what's surprising about the um, Wayne Barker situation is that he maybe wasn't such a good guy if nobody cared to look for him after he left but his former employee said he was a great guy. employer said he was a great guy so i don't know but That's nobody so looked for him nobody like so it's weird isn't that crazy yeah 
Betty officially became Mrs. Jimmy Don Beats in August of 1982, less than a year after she murdered her fourth husband. Wow. She's moving fast now. Yep. Shortly thereafter, Betty Lou set up a honey-do list for her new sweetie, and the first order of business was for him to build- Wait, let me guess. Let me guess. Was to dig a hole. (laughs) I know that would have been really good. He does end up like basically building his own grave later. But in this circumstance, she made him build a tool shed over the uneven cinder block patio. And it was just not the right area for a tool shed where it was next to the trailer. Why would you build a tool shed over where you're over where the corpse is? Yes, over where the corpse is. She didn't think that you'd have to like dig to build something? I I guess he didn't because he didn't find anything. Oh my God. He couldn't understand why on earth she only wanted it exactly there. But he told his son-in-law what Betty wants, Betty gets. And he unwittingly built a mausoleum for his predecessor. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. I think she wanted more camouflage because I guess that the patio was it was made out of cinder blocks it looked terrible and the ground was uneven and it was weird so I think she was just trying to cover up the grave oh my god Betty didn't waste any time setting up her next windfall either she immediately falsified a ten thousand dollar JC Penney life insurance policy for Jimmy Don with herself as the beneficiary Unfortunately for Betty, she didn't know that Jimmy Don's beloved niece, Jackie, worked for JCPenney Insurance. And Jackie got the application across her desk, noticed that it was for Jimmy Don. um, And she called Jimmy to verify the policy after also noticing that the address on the application was not the address that he shared with Betty in the trailer. It was actually that Betty had set the correspondence to her daughter Faye's house so that he wouldn't get any mail about the insurance policy. Yeah, okay. So he was totally bewildered about why Betty would do this. And Jackie drove a copy of the application to Jimmy Don's firehouse and he canceled it immediately. That night when he went home, he confronted Betty and she claimed that she thought, whoops, I was filling out a credit card for JCPenney's. Silly old Betty doesn't know the difference between an insurance policy and a credit card that had a credit line of $10,000. So Jimmy Don was like, oh, my silly little wife. She doesn't know numbers and applications. This was just a mistake. And all was forgiven. He didn't even suspect it. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. She played the little dumb blonde act. And what was... Furthermore, Jimmy Don at this point told her, oh, honey, you don't even need a $10,000 policy because I already have a life insurance policy that would pay out $100,000 if the unthinkable happens. She could not even believe her good luck. She's getting completely off (laughs) with having tried to set up a payout of $10,000. And he's like, would you do that when I got a hundred grand if I die? Jesus Christ. Uh Uh-huh, poor Jimmy Don. In 1983, less than a year since the two had gotten wed, Betty told older son, 19-year-old Robbie, that she planned on killing Jimmy Don. Why are you telling your kids this? I, I don't, 
I was thinking about that when she was telling Shirley too. I was like, this is like the opposite of what killers usually do. You know what I mean? Not to involve their children in their crimes. Yeah. But I feel like she's abusive and And manipulative. Manipulative. So it's like, I feel like all of that intertwined. It's not like she, I don't know. I don't, it's really weird. It's really, really weird. And I feel like maybe also a lot of narcissistic, abusive, emotionally abusive people like don't have boundaries. This is another example of not having proper boundaries with your children. Yep. 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 Yeah. It's so weird. So weird. And, and Robbie was in a weird position too, because he's not Bobby. He is the older one. He hadn't lived with her for a very long time. And he always grew up feeling like he got rejected from his mother because he grew up with his dad. And he felt like most kids who go through divorce end up with their mothers. And he felt like his mom didn't love him. And he always wanted to come back to her. So he he moved back in with Betty when he was 18 because he wanted to. Yeah. So he's living with her at this point. And I think that that dynamic of the absent mother figure that probably always seemed better than whatever his father who had to actually discipline him and actually be with him day to day. He had built up a fantasy of what Betty would be like as a mother and how great it would be to live with her. So he's very easy to manipulate at this point, you know? Yeah. So Robbie was completely surprised by this. His mother obviously had had a long line of scumbags who beat the crap out of her. But Jimmy Don wasn't like that at all. And literally no one could report that he was. Not her children, yeah. not anyone, and not his but ex-wives. At, at this point, it's not even about that. It's yeah, about the it, life insurance policy. It was about the money. He was a big-hearted and gregarious firefighter who was kind and generous with Betty, Her wish to kill him made no sense to Robbie. He implored his mother to explain. And she said, well, for one thing, he's got a bunch of insurance. So Robbie countered, I've spent my entire life worrying about how I'm going to pay my bills. I'm tired of it. Anyway, who knows when he'll start slapping me around like the others, she said. Betty also noted that she would receive his pension. So in her mind, this is like an investment in her future. Yep. Ugh. So whether it was pure greed or honest to goodness PTSD and legitimate trauma, Betty had made up her mind to kill a man who had never been anything but sweet to her. Like Shirley didn't seem to fully believe her mother's threats, Robbie also brushed off her comments. Nevertheless, Betty sent both her boys out for the night and got to murder plotting. Betty waited for Jimmy Don to get into bed, just like she had with Wayne. And then she crept into their bedroom, the very same one she had dispatched of her last husband in. It was a hot August Texas evening and handsome Jimmy Don was sleeping in the buff. Betty steeled her resolve and shot Jimmy first in the chest, aiming for his heart, and then immediately at his head at close range. Yikes. Don died instantly. The room was covered with blood and Betty set to work on her cleanup job just like she had with Wayne. Having deja vu after rolling Jimmy Don up in a sleeping bag and hauling him with effort to her closet, she called Shirley to come help. This time, Shirley was furious. You promised you'd never kill anyone again, she screamed. Betty begged (laughs) Shirley to come. This time, Shirley refused. 
I mean, we can all bitch about our moms growing up, but at least they never tried to make us accomplices to murder. Yeah, forced us. Twice. Yeah. <laughs> Mom. Mom, you promised you'd never kill anyone again. You bitch. <laughs> oh, my God. Betty instead enlisted Robbie to assist her in burying Jimmy Don in the wishing well planter he had only days earlier built for her himself. No. Mm -hmm. She asked him to dig out a foundation and make her a wishing well to plant her flowers in, and he did. Oh, my God. She's horrible. Yeah, she's horrible. I set, I set up the, like... The story has a question, but I knew she was horrible. <laughs> I just wanted you to tell me she's horrible. <laughs> Shirley, meanwhile, had second thoughts. She was getting real nervous about what was going on over at Betty's house, and she knew Robbie was there, and asked her husband to drive her over to her mother's house, saying Betty had gotten into an awful fight with Jimmy Don, and she needed to check on her. It was nearly two in the morning when they arrived, Shirley instructing her husband, Jody, to stay in the car. Shirley was told that the dirty work had been completed with her new child accomplice, and Shirley was free to drive the hour back to Dallas. A confused Jody drove a visibly relieved Shirley back home, completely unaware of what his in-laws had been up to. Unreal. Unreal. Talk about a nightmare family to marry into. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. The next day, Betty instructed Robbie to take some heart condition medication of Jimmy Don's and scatter them around his boat. He was then instructed to basically drive the boat out to the middle of the lake and leave the boat floating. The idea was, of course, to make it appear as though Jimmy okay. Don had been out on the water when he experienced a cardiac episode. And in his panic, he fell overboard and drowned. There would be a body out there then? Yes, exactly. Robbie complied with her wishes and with that grim task complete, Betty called the police to report her beloved husband missing. Unreal. Unreal. I think she knew that people were going to actually miss this guy versus Wayne. She could say he just took a hike. Yeah. The boat was soon found, but Betty's setup raised more questions than it answered. Jimmy Don's friends and family noted that he absolutely always placed his CB radio and wallet into a plexiglass shelf devised for exactly that purpose. He would never leave Doc without doing so. The CB radio was not in the shelf, nor were his other usual personal effects. Jimmy Don hadn't had a heart episode in five years, and the pills that were strewn about were two years past their prescription expiration date. It's all very fishy. His uh, recent, yeah, yeah. <laughs> his if he was my if I was his family, I'd be like, uh, excuse me, excuse me, come again. His his recent physical had also shown him to be in excellent health. In short, the boat scenario stank to high heaven. It sunk. <laughs> it's sunk, stunk. <laughs> The community rallied around their fallen fire captain and over 50 firefighters volunteered their time and shifts to search for Jimmy Don. Yep. This guy was massively beloved. Like yep. she fucked with the wrong husband. All of the private boats on the lake turned into a massive search party as well as private citizens, helicopters, and small planes. The Red Cross and Coast Guard aided in the search. But of course, 
no one found Jimmy Don or his body. Both Jimmy Don's father and son Jamie suspected Betty of foul play. During the extensive search, Jimmy Don's dad watched Betty drive up in his son's truck. She got another truck out of this one. Unreal. And reportedly said, that damn woman, Jimmy Don ain't in this lake. No, sir, that bitch of a woman has done something really bad to my son. <laughs> You're right, Papa. Papa Don. Papa. Papa Beats. <laughs> Um, all in all, over 3,000 man hours were spent searching for Jimmy Don's body over 13 long days. Closure for Betty, however, had happened much sooner than it had for the search party and certainly his loved ones. Only two days after she reported Jimmy Don missing, Betty had purchased a casket at a funeral home and bought a cemetery plot for her fifth husband. She even had the balls to request that a memorial service be held for Jimmy Don the next week while the search was still ongoing. So dumb. She is not being smart. No. She's not being smart. Dumb. Also, just the cojones to be like, while they're actively searching, she's not showing up there and like crying and acting like a widow. She's like, so uh, we're going to do the memorial next week. Like, let's let's wrap this up, people unbelievable <laughs> obviously jimmy don's family was aghast and refused to participate in desperation some of jimmy don's family contacted psychics one pretty spot-on prediction that later ran chills up their spines was a woman who said definitively that he wasn't in the water which is where everyone was looking and that he would be uncovered from a makeshift grave on July 8th of 1985. Now, this was all taking place in August of 1983 when he went missing. So the fact that she said that is pretty crazy because when Jimmy Don was eventually dug up, it was on June 8th of 1985, the psychic had been off by exactly one month. She had gotten That's the date and the year right and just was off by one month. That's crazy wild yep betty certainly wasn't doing herself any favors when the firehouse chaplain visited betty to comfort her in her time of grief he was shocked to find the dry-eyed widow only having questions about his life insurance policy and pension she became enraged when he suggested that texas law prohibited insurance payouts for at least seven years if there's not a body oops guess you didn't do your research there betty lou seven years good thing they're gonna find the body though soon you know <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> all of a sudden he's like dug up and she puts him somewhere else she's like he's in the yard guys he's in the yard oh my god i forgot to tell you uh, he fell in the planter and then i couldn't get him out so i just put some i just put some flowers over him Betty and her brood seemed unable to keep their mouths shut about the murders, too. Robbie told a girlfriend he had helped his mother bury an ex-husband, and the girlfriend oh. told her grandmother in California. Oh, my God. Yep. And then Shirley got tequila drunk and tearfully confessed to her sister Phyllis and Phyllis's husband that Mama had killed two men and she had helped. And... Worst of all, Betty herself let her secret slip to a married lover she met while working at the Cedar Club. After the better part of a bottle of vodka and a roll in the hay at a cheap motel, 
Betty said to the man, according to this man, Gerald Albright, here we are fucking and having so much fun. You wouldn't think it was so funny if you knew that one guy I fucked is buried in my front yard. Oh my God. Oh my God. Later. She's like like a made up person. This is unreal. She's like a, a murderous Muppet of a person. Is just uh, I've said wild like 18 times this episode. I just I can't even stop. Um, yeah, and so later the police did end up talking to this guy, and they're like, Do you think she was serious when she said that? And he goes, Oh yeah, I'm terrified of her. She's a terrifying woman. <laughs> but I still shagged her. Yes, I think that's part of the thrill. <laughs> He's like, you gonna kill me? You gonna kill me? You gonna kill me? He's like, uh, you can't fuck a roller coaster, but this is near as close as you can get. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, wild! I have to stop saying that, but I just can't stop thinking it. Oh my god! So yeah, naturally, all this talk eventually made its way into law enforcement. First, a low life friend of Gerald's, that guy she said that thing to. Yeah. Um, he was arrested on a minor charge. <laughs> just that thing. <laughs> she just dropped, let it drop. Said that thing, you know. Do you think afterwards she was like, so you want to go again? <laughs> Probably. Probably. And he was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes? Yes? <laughs> I'm terrified yet aroused. <laughs> Oh, my God. (laughs) I kind of feel like that's how Nathaniel felt when we got together. (laughs) Terrified, yet intrigued. (laughs) Oh, my God. So, yeah, one of Gerald's friends got arrested for a minor charge. And um, he was like, hey, I have some information about the Jimmy Don Beats case. His wife murdered him. I know because my friend was banging her and she basically admitted to it. And they were like, cool, 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 cool. If you testify to that, we'll let you off for this charge. And he's like, cool, 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 cool. Let's do it. (laughs) And then next, Phyllis let it drunkenly slip to her friend one night that her mother was a two-time murderer who buried her lovers in her front yard. And that friend like immediately excused herself, went to a payphone and called Crime Stoppers. (laughs) Man, all of the tips went straight to Deputy Rick Rose with the sheriff's office, who already had an antenna up for Betty after her abhorrent (laughs) behavior and the concerns of Jimmy Don's family, who all thought she was involved. Um, So he went to interview Phyllis, who immediately began crying and spilled everything that she had heard from Shirley. My God, these people. They did not keep it together well. But that's also (laughs) like the more people you involve in your murder, the faster you're going to get caught. I mean, last week with the Elkhorn 8, they got caught real fast. Oh, my God. I know people can't keep their mouths shut. Nope, 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 nope. So Betty already had a new boyfriend an ex-convict named Ray Bone. That sounds right. That, oh, this is, this sounds like a match made in hell because Ray was recently paroled after serving 20 years in prison for murdering a man. So I feel I like- I don't understand how 
What else? We were watching something and this guy, oh, we were watching that new The Ripper on um, Netflix. About, oh, yeah, like, the about night- Dennis, what's his name? Or No, that's Des. I'm thinking about the wrong one. It's about the Yorkshire Ripper, right? Exactly. Yeah. And he's only in jail for like his, like, it was like 30 years or something. And I'm like, he killed like 13 women that we know about. Like how crazy. And like, how is that not LWAP? I don't know, but I think it's different in the UK. I think I, I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It other countries don't approach capital punishment the same way we do. Also, this guy's name is Ray Bones. It's Ray Bone. And I don't know the circumstances of the crime. It could have been just like they got into a fight and he killed them with excessive force or something, you know, not like, like Nick Cage and Con like Air. <laughs> Nick Cage and Conair and that guy that I met in a bar in Saratoga. Same thing. <laughs> exact same story (laughs) that only deserves 20 years you know yeah exactly (laughs) his hand was a weapon yeah I actually I dated a guy who would like I don't even know if this is true this is what he told me (laughs) he told me he had been in some like ultimate fighting I guys I apologize for me dating this guy in this story um he'd been in some like ultimate fighting situation like but because if you ever do like an ultimate fighting match and it's like registered apparently your body is like a weapon or something so then when he like that's from the con air as well (laughs) so I got (laughs) twice by this is what you're saying pretty much you need to watch every nick cage film because you're obviously not educated enough about separate men used this line on me and i believed both of them no i think i think the hand being a registered weapon is from a movie my hand is registered but that could also be true because they base movies on truth (laughs) it is from a movie no, it's from, they said it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So that was after the, you dated this guy. So maybe that guy made it up and then Once Upon a, Quentin Tarantino stole it. I'm pretty sure Quentin Tarantino stole it from my bartender ex that I dated for three months in Boston. In 2005? In 2009, I think, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Dead. I'm dead. Um, yeah. So anyways, Ray gets caught with a gun, which is a big no-no for parolees. And he agrees to notify Rose to Betty's whereabouts in exchange for getting cut loose. Betty, however, had no idea that the noose was tightening around her slender little neck and was actually feeling pretty good about how things were going. In March of 1985, she had managed two legal feats. She was named the administrator of Jimmy Don's estate, and the court ruled that Jimmy Don could legally be declared dead. So Betty was now open to inherit $153,000 in insurance money and $800 a month for life in pension benefits, as well as everything that Jimmy Don owned was going to go straight to her as the sole heir. Wow. Not for long. Not for long. With the evidence mounting, including the statements of the two previous husbands that Betty had tried to murder, they got in touch with Billy Lane and with Ronnie Threlkeld, and they're like, yeah, she tried to kill me. 
Rose was able to secure an arrest warrant for Betty Lou Beats and a search warrant to dig up her yard. Betty was arrested on murder charges and her bail was set at $100,000. She was not a happy camper when they told her that they had a warrant to bring a backhoe in, especially when they mentioned that they were also looking for the body of Doyle Wayne Barker. She had not yet realized that the police had put two and two together. <laughs> Betty refused to speak and asked for her lawyer, a colorful barfly she had met at the Cedar Club named E. Ray Andrews. Back at Betty's house, the truth was finally revealed as both Wayne Barker and Jimmy Don Beat's bodies were exhumed from their Betty made graves. Deputy Rick Rose sighed in relief while the families grieved and the neighbors gossiped and rubbernecked at the edge of the crime scene tape. Some of the neighbors' statements to local TV reporters are just too good for me not to share. <laughs> so, y'all, get ready for some bad Southern accent acting over here. I, like, literally couldn't stop myself from wanting to share this with you. The residents of Cedar Creek community were relieved when reporters told them of Betty's arrest. One woman related how she had forced her young son to take karate lessons to protect himself from Betty's family. And those friends of hers were always hanging around, another neighbor complained. They were the boot-stomping, cowboy hat, pickup truck kind of people. Mrs. Rosen... Isn't everyone there that type of person? <laughs> that just sounds like Texas. <laughs> Mrs. Rosenberg, who lived down the street, said, I walk my dog, Bubblegum, along here every night, and he about tore my arms out of their sockets trying to get over to that well. He used to sniff like crazy before I could pull him away and get on with our walk. Guess he knew something I didn't. Oh, my God. Bubblegum. <laughs> Bubblegum. Bubblegum. Bubblegum, get in here. Her arrest doesn't surprise me one bit, said a man who requested that his name not be used. Betty moved into this area four years ago, and now look at this, he said, gesturing toward the yard. Turned it into a damn killing field. Whole families had a history of gunfights and disturbances. A tidy little woman waited her turn to speak. Saw it with my own eyes, she told the reporter. The family used to stand in their yard and shoot turtles with a rifle. Oh my God, that's fucked up. <laughs> that's so fucked up. Sweet turtles little turtles. Turtles so <laughs> Yeah, they're sitting ducks. They're sitting turtles. Oh, they're slower than ducks. <laughs> yeah, they're a lot slower than ducks and they can't fly. Even at full speed. <laughs> See, that's it's pretty. so fucked. It's so mean. So that's what the neighbors had to say about Betty Lou Beats and her crew. Who was her crew, though? Like, Shirley and, and It was, Bobby? like, Robbie and Bobby. They were, like, teenage boys doing stupid teenage boy shit, you know? Oh, God. Shirley was also arrested on the day she returned from her honeymoon to her second husband. The authorities mostly wanted Shirley to turn on her mother, but there, of course, was some suspicion of her involvement as an accomplice as she was the only child who had known about both murders. Shirley spent a month in prison locked up with her mother before her father and sister Phyllis convinced her to cut a deal with the prosecution and get her ass out of jail, as well as get a new lawyer, because when she was first locked up, Betty convinced her to have 
Betty's attorney, E. Ray, also represent Shirley, who, of course, turned down any deals on Shirley's behalf that would endanger his main client, Betty, which seems super unethical to me. Yep. In any a little case, bit of a conflict of interest. Yeah, I would say. In any case, Shirley's dad got her a new lawyer and she agreed to testify against Betty Lou. In a preliminary hearing, it was decided that Betty would certainly be heading to trial for murder charges in the Jimmy, in the Jimmy Don case. Her attorney, E. Ray Andrews, did his darndest to get the trial moved out of the county where the case had been so publicized and Jimmy Don so beloved, but actually ended up screwing his own case when he held up a national tabloid magazine that featured Betty. The prosecution correctly pointed out that if the news coverage was national, there'd be no worse or better place to hold the trial. Like there was no going to be no place where they didn't know about her, you know? Yeah. The judge agreed with the prosecution and Betty's highly anticipated trial was set to begin on October 7th, 1985 in Athens, Texas. Speaking of E. Ray, the defense attorney was a folk legend at the time, a tenacious lawyer with a good old Texas boy style of speaking and vernacular, who was well known about town for getting some shady people off and for enjoying a good drink, wild turkey being his poison of choice. Betty's insurance and pension money was obviously tied up in lawsuits. Of course, Jimmy Dean's son, Jamie, was contesting Betty's appointment as sole heir and attempting to prevent the money she gained by killing his father being used to get her out of trouble for killing his father. (laughs) So gross. So gross. Broke while the money was tied up, Betty made a contractual agreement with E. Ray to give him her media rights which were worth considerably more if Betty was found to be guilty. He signed the rights over to his son to make it appear there was no conflict of interest, but it's still sneaky, sneaky, shady because basically he wins either way. If he wins and gets her off, she gets the insurance money and she pays him. If Uh he loses and she becomes a famous Black Widow murderer who he can sell the rights to her book or movie, then he gets even more money. So this is a total, like, he doesn't really care what happens to Betty. That's crazy. Crazy that that was allowed. I mean, he transferred it to his son, but still, come on. The trial began as scheduled, and Robbie and Shirley were the star witnesses against their mother. When Shirley recounted her time on the stand 35 years later in Evil Lives Here, she was still so visibly traumatized With tears in her eyes, she described how she was telling the truth on the stand, but the whole time Betty just stared at her with this hateful look and shook her head no at everything Shirley said during her entire testimony as if it were all lies. It broke Shirley's heart, she said, in pieces because she was finally doing the right thing, but she was losing the love of the parent she had spent her entire young life trying to please and gain approval from. Yeah. And I mean, like, and accomplished murder. I mean, she obviously like had some sort of in debt to her. Mm-hmm. And she's debt finally like doing the right thing and becoming independent and speaking out against her mother. And her mother's just like casting her with hateful looks and denying everything and like making it seem like to the jury that Shirley's a liar. Yep. Even worse than that behavior was what Betty did to her children when E. Ray revealed the defense's strategy. 
the defense said that Robbie was the killer of Jimmy Don Beats and that the oh, role, mm-hmm, she went after her own kid, that the roles as described by Robbie were actually reversed. 19-year-old Robbie had killed Jimmy Don during a fight and Betty, being a loyal and loving mother, had helped her son bury the body on her land to save him. Wow. And of course, what about Wayne then? Oh, Shirley killed him. Wow. Wow. Come on. Come on. The family, of course, was shocked. The kids like did not see that one coming at all. To convince her children to become accomplices to murder was disgusting enough, but now to attempt to pin the murders on them entirely? Un-effing believable. Oh my God. She is a piece of work. Seriously. And ooh, boy, did Betty double down. She sat right up there in that witness box and lied and perjured her face off. She said that she discovered her son holding a gun over Jimmy Don's body and made a big show of fake crying, saying that she was like crying over Jimmy Don and being like, I just got to help my son now. You know, you would understand Jimmy Don. You love your son too. I'm so sorry. I love you. I'm going to go do this now. I feel like what do the kids have to gain from killing these people? Nothing. Nothing. This is not a good... So she was like fake crying. She like stopped and requested a tissue. Apparently it was so patently ridiculous that people in the gallery were laughing out loud. Like they were like oh. just laughing at her display. Oh my God. Faye, Betty's oldest daughter, was the only child who testified in her favor as mostly a character witness. The trial and the murders had wiped. I mean, she believed her mother. What? So I don't know if Faye believed that her siblings did it, but she like was all on Betty's side. That's Apparently, so weird. It totally created a rift with all the children. Obviously, Shirley and Robbie knew what their mother had done. Phyllis was on the fence. Like Phyllis was like a little bit like, I, I think she did it, but I, it doesn't make me not love her kind of. Connie was like neutral territory, but Bobby and Faye, the youngest and the oldest, were like 100% on Betty's side. That is crazy. I mean, it's just, it's emotional manipulation over that many years. And also just in general, like I think people have a hard time really seeing their parents or their children for who they are sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So after some impassioned closing statements, the trial was concluded. The jury deliberated for only six and a half hours and came back with a verdict of guilty of capital murder. After the verdict was read, there were some whoops in the courtroom, but for the most part, it was a somber affair. Wayne Barker's sister, Peggy, said she was happy with the verdict. I finally know how my brother died, she said. Jimmy Don Beats, only son Jamie, said, I think justice has been done. Now my dad can rest in peace. Only some of Betty's children were hysterical, Faye telling reporters through tears, I know my mother didn't do this. I know down in my heart she's innocent. It was all an accident. An accident that killed two husbands and buried them in her <laughs> yard? In her yard. <laughs> Come on, Faye. Come on, baby. 
No, no, oh just no. God. The following Monday was the punishment phase and the prosecution argued for the death penalty while E. Ray attempted to spare Betty's life. Alas, after 45 minutes of deliberation, the jury sided with the state of Texas and Betty Lou Beats was sentenced to death by lethal injection. Stop. Uh-huh. Texas, though. It's Texas justice, baby. Betty went after every appeal possible, even attempting to get her case heard by the Supreme Court, but the court refused to hear it. She was set to be the first woman executed in Texas since the Civil War. In 1989, as Betty waited for her execution date to be set, she began giving interviews to garner sympathy for her plight. Once described by newspapers as sullen and haggard at her arrest, Now, when she talked with the press, they said she had a softer look. Newspapers portrayed her gray hair as neatly quaffed and mentioned her pink nail polish that matched her dark pink lip gloss. The papers made her seem more human, almost playful, by referring to the Garfield the cat scarf she wore around her neck with her prison whites. Stop it right now. Okay, I really want to try. I didn't find that photo. I'm going to do some Googling, but like, I want to see the Garfield the cat scarf. I hate Mondays. I love lasagna. <laughs> Soon, E. Ray Andrews became the target of Betty Beat's bitter attacks. He gave me poor representation, she'd say to anyone who would listen. He failed to tell me that the district attorney offered a life sentence in exchange for a plea of guilty. A quick check with the court showed that no such offer had ever been made. But Betty continued. E. Ray persuaded me to sign over the book and movie rights to my life and wants to profit from my execution. Asked by the Dallas Morning News to respond to Betty's tirade, E. Ray said, I went overboard to help this little lady, but if I were on death row, I might be grabbing at anything I could too. In (laughs) August of 1989, the court granted E. Ray's motion to withdraw as Beats' attorney. Betty's life continued to change. She found religion. I've got Christ in my life, she told reporters. Every night before I go to bed, I hold hands with my cellmates and pray. Then we give each other a hug. Two years after entering prison, she took classes and finally received her GED. Then she began correspondence courses in business and accounting. Wow. Execution dates were set and postponed as Betty and her new lawyers took every legal avenue possible to get her death sentence overturned. One of her most compelling appeals characterized Betty as a woman who had been raped, beaten, and tortured throughout her entire life. Betty's new attorneys provi- Betty's new attorneys had provided her with a panel of neurologists and psychi- psychiatrists to study her. After hearing Betty's life story, the doctors determined that she was a battered wife with post-traumatic stress disorder. In early 1990, the psychologist readied a report for the court describing the syndrome as a situation where a murder isn't necessarily spontaneous with the abuse. A murder can occur when an abused person becomes stressed at a later time and then kills her abuser. The appeals attorneys were critical that no mental health information or reports of abuse were presented at her initial murder trial, which is a good point. That would have been a much better defense than her kids did it. Yep. 
The doctors concluded that Beats's physical and mental disabilities made her dependent on a man to help her to pay her bills and provide emotional support. They also said that her drug and alcohol abuse was her attempt to self-medicate and reduce the intrusive thoughts and feelings of traumatic events. She exhibited strong dependency needs that caused her to be in relationships with men who abused her. I mean, this is all valid, but it didn't come up in her trial, you know? No, yeah. So while they're trying to fight her execution, Bill Lane's first wife testified to the same abusive treatments and Bobby, who had lived the longest with Betty and her various husbands, testified that he recalled both Ronnie Threlkeld and Wayne Barker beating his mother. But unlike with Bill Lane, where there was proof and she had gone to the hospital, there was no proof in, you know, Ronnie and Wayne's cases. There was no photos, there was no recordings, there was no hospital visits. A stay of execution was scheduled while a new judge reviewed the new evidence, but ultimately decided to uphold the original verdict and sentence. Yeah, I mean, I'm like impressed with all of this data and information that they found and like are fighting with all these appeals, you know, like. Yeah, I mean, this this appeal process went on for a very, very long time. I mean, she was convicted I think in, you know, the eighties and she doesn't get executed until 2000. Crazy. The year 2000. Mm-hmm. Wow. So this goes on for a really long time and they fought like hell to, to get the sentence overturned. The accounts of Betty's abuse at the hands of her husbands made their way to the media and Betty and Betty gained thousands of impassioned supporters, as well as anti-death penalty advocates who also took up her case. Another blow occurred in 1994 when 28-year-old Bobby, Betty's baby and favorite child, was killed in a tragic car accident. Betty was devastated and she said that it was worse than being put to death. A new appeal. Well, yeah, because when you die, you die. Yeah, it's way you worse to, to live. <laughs> this is why I always tell Nathaniel I get to go first. Ladies first. <laughs> I don't want to deal with life after you. I know, but then we can't have our beach bar. Oh, that's true. He can go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Nathaniel, you can't go until you're 99. We just have to like get our beach bar when we're like in our 80s. Yeah. Well, they're still alive. It'd be like the best if they were still alive. For sure. It'd be way better. <laughs> Nathaniel's going to listen to this episode and give me so much shit. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Jesse. <laughs> oh, man. A new appeal was set to explore E. Ray Andrews' defense of Betty and whether it was adequate, as he had never approached the case from the battered woman perspective. But there was no evidence that Betty had ever informed E-Ray of her physical and psychological torment. So that was eventually thrown out. In a twist, E-Ray had actually replaced the district attorney who had tried Betty's case. So the dastardly defense attorney had become the DA himself. However, the good old boy could not keep himself out of trouble. This is from uh, Buried Memories. While serving as the DA... E. Ray Andrews began doling out favors for his friends, such as forgiving speeding tickets. Then he left the scene of an accident after slamming his Oldsmobile into a closed gas station with an empty bottle of wild turkey in the car. Jesus. 
Two years after becoming DA in July of 1994, Andrews resigned. I just don't want no more of the cheese, he said of his turbulent DA career. I want out of the trap. Wow. He's a good old boy. E. Ray must have seen the writing on the wall, for he had slipped out of office only one month before FBI agents hauled him off in handcuffs. Athens buzzed with the news of E. Ray's arrest, a man they genuinely liked but knew had a dark side. They called him a heck of a campaigner, a talented lawyer when sober, and a real witty and friendly guy who had a winning way about him. A fellow worker said E. Ray would come late to work, others days, other days he'd leave early, and then sometimes he didn't show at all. Everyone agreed that his downfall was a self-inflicted tragedy. E. Ray had talked a friend into approaching a Corsicana businessman who had been indicted for murdering his wife and to tell him that D.A. Andrews would drop the indictment for $500,000. Wow. Wow. Corruption. Once the businessman heard of the bribe, he told his attorneys who immediately reported it to the FBI. The suspected murderer and the FBI collaborated to trap Andrews. With the FBI listening and recording the phone conversation, the businessman negotiated a new price of $300,000 for Andrew's service. The next day, the man placed a hundred grand in Andrew's safety deposit box. Later, the court dismissed the businessman's murder indictment after his attorneys argued that the district attorney's conduct had tainted the proceedings. I would be... So pissed if I was that woman's like sister, mother, child, loved one, and her killer potentially just got off because of a corrupt DA. Yep. It probably happens so often. Oh, it's heartbreaking. It's horrible. In that same year, E. Ray's wife of 32 years divorced him. The bank foreclosed on his 4,000 square foot house on the peaceful shores of Lake Athens and took away his Mercedes. Andrews pleaded guilty to violating the Federal Hobbs Act and was sentenced to 42 months in a federal prison. In 2000, the Washington Post reached out to E. Ray and interviewed him via phone while he was at a VFW bar. The then 59-year-old said he was bunking rent-free in a friend's spare bedroom and had done occasional odd jobs since getting released from prison. Just enough work to keep eating, partner, he said. I've probably been drinking since I was 14 years old. He did say that, but he denied that alcohol clouded his thinking in the Beats case. While also reportedly Robbie said that one time he went to go talk to E. Ray during a break in the trial and he had whiskey on his breath. Oh, God. Disaster. So I Googled him. And it came up with an independent attorney named Earl Ray Andrews, still practicing in Athens, Texas, as of 2018. So I don't know. I mean, I imagine he was disbarred, but I I think it's kind of interesting to think of this old codger, like still at it in his like, you know, late 70s, early 80s. Oh, my God. Yeah. But yeah, he's reportedly still alive. So who knows what old E. Ray is up to? Despite massive amounts of appeals, protests, and publicity, including interviews on Good Morning in America and Geraldo, Betty's execution date was definitively set for February 24th, 2000, almost 21 years exactly coming up. Wow. Betty declined a special last meal 
and requested that her children not be present at her death. Only her minister and lawyer accompanied her into the death chamber. Betty's execution attracted tons of media and protesters. While the execution began inside, a young preacher stood outside and raised his hand to quiet the gathering near the wall. Dear Father, he said, we pray for mercy for those carrying out this heinous act. We ask that Betty find peace. To listen to him, the murderer was the victim, law enforcement the villain, and the public held the responsibility for ending the madness. The minister <laughs> urged everyone to work for a moratorium on the death penalty. Someone in the crowd muttered, what about a moratorium on murder? <laughs> Valid point, sir. Were you so mad that she didn't have a last meal? I was so mad, Andy. Last meals are my favorite. I just, I think about it. I think about food all the time. I want to know. The fact that she was just like, eh, I'll have whatever everybody in the cafeteria is eating. I'm like, eh. Yeah, it's like, you're really disappointing me. You're really disappointing. And you get so few pleasures in life. Take a last meal. I know. Yikes. So Betty was calm and stoic as she was strapped to the gurney and the IV was placed in her arm. She declined to utter any last words. Irene Pence wrote, by doing that, she denied the victim's families one last concession, that one last olive branch of peace. There would be no last second confession, just silence. At 6.18 in the evening, she was declared dead. Well, the sons of Jimmy Don and Wayne Barker held a press conference after the execution. The protesters cried and wailed at the injustice. One reporter reached out to a crying young woman and said, don't cry for Betty. Cry for the families whose fathers she killed and cry yeah. for her own children who she turned into accomplices to murder. Yeah. Amen. 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 Don't cry for Betty. Don't cry for Betty. <laughs> Betty Tina. <laughs> uh, so that is the Black Widow, Betty Lou Beats. Crazy. Crazy story, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, she's like a unique little bird. She she had her own thing going on. I mean, it's very rare that a personality comes out of a story like this so strongly, you know? Yeah, she's she's an interesting one. And so, like, update on her kids. Well, Shirley wasn't doing so good. Um, it seemed like Shirley was at least on her third husband because she had a different last name from her previous two husbands in the book. Okay. Um, and she said she was doing all right. Uh, but, I mean, she was clearly still traumatized by what happened to yeah. her, her mother, you know, it, it was like just really hard for her to talk about. I mean, if you guys watch the evil lives here, she actually like sits down and has like a, a genuine like anxiety attack and has to not record the first day she can't film and she leaves and then she like comes back and it kind of seems like, you know, she's maybe on something or she like had taken something to like take the edge off or something. Cause she's like with it, but not, and she's crying. I mean, it's just, like, and I don't want to denigrate anything about Shirley. She's like an amazing woman that went through a lot of hard things. But like, yeah, she clearly was deeply affected by this. And it's something that affected her for the rest of her life. Of so course. I imagine it's the same with the the other children, you know. So sad. 
And it's really, really tragic. I mean, what, how the, you know, the cycle of abuse ripples and, and what these children went through and how it affected them growing up. So it's, you know, as much as we can have a good laugh at some of the stuff that Betty said and, and how she, you know, portrayed herself, she was a bad person. And, and I think that's what her kids are also reconciling. Like, how do you reconcile all the good moments and the, the things that your mama did or said that made you feel loved or made you laugh with when she hit you or when she abused you emotionally or when she said these things to you. Made you you an accomplice. Or made you an accomplice for murder and then blamed murder on you. It's trippy, dude. It's it's a situation no kid should ever be in. Well, if you like this story, you can tell us by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you like stickers. Or if you like stickers and just, you know, brightening two pregnant ladies' days, go ahead and leave us leave us a line. We'd love to hear from you. In conclusion, y'all, don't remarry your ex after they shoot you. Don't do it. It's also probably a really good idea to not turn your children into murder accomplices involuntarily. Woof. Poor idea all around for everyone involved. And as always, remember, we are all just one nasty Texan woman away from getting murdered. Bye. Bye, Bye, (laughs) y'all.